0: Please remain standing and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. Our sermon text in Romans 1 is going to talk about sin and rebellion against God, not only in terms of right and wrong, but also, at the same time, in terms of wisdom and folly, foolishness. With that in mind, let's hear from a book that's all about wisdom and folly, Proverbs, starting at Proverbs 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out, At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge. And did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel. And despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way. And have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me. Will dwell secure. And will be at ease. Without dread of disaster. Amen. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 18 through 20. I'll start back at 18, verse 18 for context, but the sermon text for today will start at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, Amen. You may be seated. In high school and college, the four years of study at each level uh, we call freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years, right? My favorite one of those is the word sophomore which comes from two Greek words, one meaning wise and the other meaning fool. So a sophomore is literally a wise fool. In other words, a stereotype is of somebody who has learned enough in one year to think he knows more than he really does. So he's, he's learned enough to think that he's smart, and maybe to sound smart, but really he's only scratched the surface. And if he's not self aware about that, if he doesn't have the humility to recognize how far he still has to go, how much he still has to learn, well, then that person can end up thinking and saying some very foolish things. And he can live up to that name of sophomore, wise fool all the more foolish precisely because he thinks he's so wise. Talks like he's wise, but he really isn't. I think that's a good analogy for the kind of person that the Apostle Paul is describing here at the end of Romans 1. This passage traces what has sometimes been called the death spiral of sin. It's talking about the implosion of, of the human race, as we collapse inward under the weight of our own sinfulness, our own rebellion against the God who made us. We're going to explore this section in three parts. First, we'll be rejecting what we know, verses 21 to 22. Second, trading away the truth, verses 23 to 27. And third, getting what we want. Verse 28 to 32. Rejecting what we know, trading away the truth, getting what we want. First thing is rejecting what we know. I remember once, I think I was in high school at the time, it was late November, and our our pastor wanted to give a Thanksgiving-themed message. But uh, he was also the kind of person who liked to be a little offbeat and make you think, mix things up a little bit. And so this particular Thanksgiving message he chose as his text Romans one twenty one, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. For some reason, I've never forgotten that. And his point that day, which was that ingratitude, ingratitude is at the heart of unbelief. Last time we talked about God's revelation In creation, right? How we can't escape the knowledge of God. It's like trying to escape knowing about the Son. To live in God's world is to know God. It's to encounter the truth about him everywhere we turn. Not just the truth about his existence, but also about his power, about his wisdom, about his goodness. Because the things that God has made are shouting it out all the time without stopping. And so that means that there's no excuse for not knowing God. There's no excuse for not knowing God. Of course, we talked about how people suppress that truth about God that they know. They don't like it, and so they don't acknowledge it. They don't admit the knowledge that they have. That's verses 18 to 20 from last time. Now today's passage and what follows describes the consequences of that truth suppression. When people refuse to honor God, there is this ricochet effect. It's very damaging to a person because it breaks in a very fundamental way that person's relationship to the truth. And it puts them on a path towards greater and greater confusion and folly. They became futile in their thinking, Paul says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Wise fools. So in other places, like 1 Corinthians, for example, Paul will contrast the wisdom of God, which appears foolish to the unbelieving world, will contrast that with the so-called wisdom of unbelief that is actually folly, measured by the Lord. Um, So rejection of God, then, is so often masked in this show of intellectual superiority. It, it masquerades as wisdom, when in fact, what's really happening is it, is it is simply flying in the face of reality. And it can only lead then to very tragic consequences in every phase of human life. And Paul describes this as the darkening of the human heart. The whole thing, the intellect, the will, our moral compass, it is all thrown into disorder by that fundamental choice to reject the inescapable truth about God in creation. And that initial act, then, that initial act of truth suppression at the very beginning, that leads then to further problems on down the road. As their foolish hearts are darkened, become futile in their, futile in their thinking. Here's what happens next. You may remember from our apologetic Sunday school class a while back what that author Daniel Strange referred to as the suppression-substitution dynamic that marks unbelieving thought and life. Suppression-substitution. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So people reject the truth that they encounter about God. But our hearts all along are still craving meaning and value and standards, and truth. We can't live without those things. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? We've got to fill it with something else. You can't just reject the truth. You have to put something else in its place. Something is always going to take those that place in the human heart to fill those longs or, or try to. And so as Paul goes on here in the following verses, he talks about this notion of substitution or, or exchange in a few different ways, um, both general and specific. The first one's pretty general, and it takes place in the form of outright religious activities, right? So, uh, worship, in other words, um, where people substitute the worship of the true God for the false worship of false gods. It says they exchanged, see, it's a trade, it's a trade, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, so don't want that, Instead, we're going to take these images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's a different way of telling this story of the human race down through time. Some people will tell it like this. They'll say, well, you know, religion started out as um, people kind of going along in the world and they see all these powerful forces of nature and they say, wow, those are so much bigger than us. We're going to, we're going to start worshipping those. Um, but then, of course, as the eons went on, people became more and more sophisticated, religion became more and more complicated and more and more abstract, until at last you got to this point of monotheism, one, one god, this one god who's, who's kind of spiritual, who's above the natural world instead of down mixed in with it. And then now, of course, they will say, and in our enlightened age, we've taken the next step even further. where We don't even need belief in God at all. We've seen through all of these things. We've ascended even higher. Paul is saying that, that narrative of the history of human religion is exactly wrong. It's reversed from the way things really are. So that, that kind of animism, that nature worship, that's the corruption of true worship. It's a downward descent, not an upward descent of human religion that he's describing here. So, that worship of creatures represents people rejecting the Creator, choosing to worship the creature instead. And Paul's intent here is not just to point out that that is wrong, though it is. His intent here is to point out how foolish that is, that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, it is folly which, of course, is exactly the kind of point that the Old Testament prophets make time after time, especially, uh, for example, Isaiah. Remember that time when he talks about the man who cuts down a tree and out of half of it he uh, makes a fire, keep himself warm, and out of the other half he makes an idol to worship. And, and Isaiah is, is kind of poking at this idea, pointing out the absurdity of it all, of worshiping, of relying spiritually on things that are within the same creation that we're a part of things that are powerless to help themselves much less help us while all along you are rejecting the one who made those things as well as you saying no we don't want that we don't want him we're going to substitute we're going to we want something else instead of god so they exchanged the truth about god for a lie verse 25 and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever amen Okay, but that's not where the exchange stops. Substitution stops. That suppression-substitution dynamic, again, that Daniel Strange term, that carries on then into the realm of morality, of ethics. It's not just about obviously religious activities uh, where you're going to church or going to some pagan temple or something like that. This impacts the way people make other significant choices in life, and it Impacts the way people deal with their deepest and strongest desires. And you can see again that language of substitution in verses 26 and 27, where it says, For their women exchanged, exchanged again, you see there, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So you see, again, it's an exchange. It's a rejection of God's design that is revealed in creation. And it is substituting something else in its place. Something that God did not design and that God does not approve in his law. God, of course, created human beings as male and female, men and women. And he made men and women for each other in the institution of marriage. And he did this for many reasons. He did it to provide men and women both with companionship and help in life, and importantly, to provide for children To be born and to be raised by a mom and dad who who work together to nurture those children in a family. And he set things up this way also to integrate into his creation an object lesson about his love for his people, about Christ's relationship to his church. That institution of marriage and family, according to God's design, is built into God's creation. But all the way down through history, and this is not just about the present day, this is every era you look like in history you look at in history, people have constantly wanted to substitute something else in the place of God's creational design. Substituting, for example, as Paul gives here, different ways of indulging sexual desire outside the bonds of marriage. Different ways of defining what a family is. more recently, What is more unique and innovative about our own age's rebellion against God is different ways of defining or really deconstructing completely what men and women even are, what that even means. And Paul intends to teach us here to recognize those things that we see as part of a broader pattern, part of a broader pattern of suppression and substitution giving us a context for thinking about why do these things happen. This is, once again, saying no to what God has revealed and substituting something else in its place, what we're calling trading away the truth. I just note, before we move on, Paul is talking about here those who indulge their sexual desires that are contrary to God's law. And I think it's important to point out that there are are many Christians who live with persistent and unrelenting, very painful temptation in this area of life that many other Christians simply do not share, and yet they are seeking by the grace of God to live in holy and humble obedience. It makes all the difference what you do with that temptation, as with any other temptation. It's just that some temptations are common to all of us and some are more particular that not all Christians share. And someone with that mindset of humility and holiness that I'm describing has not made this exchange that Paul is referring to. I think that's important for us to recognize. Here's what Paul is saying, though. For an individual, for a culture, or for a church to celebrate same-sex desire and indulgence, to call it good, and to substitute for God's design for human sexuality in the context of marriage, this alternative moral assessment of our own. That is what Paul is rebuking here. That is what Paul is warning against. Substituting our alternative law for God's law. That is very closely related to substituting our own God for God himself. Which is what he was talking about earlier in the passage. I also want you to notice the continued theme of wisdom and folly here. So at the beginning of the passage, we were on the intellectual level. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became futile in their thinking. And and there we're in the realm of, of the true, right? The true and the false. But folly, it's important to note, folly is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just about what we think. It's a whole person thing. And it reaches to our feelings, to our choices, our sense of right and wrong. It's not just about the true. It is also about the good and the beautiful, that Paul is speaking. That, that folly of rejecting the truth about God has consequences in other matters of the heart. It darkens our ability to see clearly the effects that sin is having on us. These passions he's talking about in verse twenty-six are dishonorable. He says they're unnatural. They are uh, people are being shameless. See, this is not just a matter of rule. It's not just, well, this list of rules I have says that this is illegal, and so I guess that means it was wrong because it's not on the list or it's against the list. No, what he's saying is sin, sin of all kinds, is not just a matter of rule-breaking. It can't be boiled down to that, although it includes rule-breaking. But it is folly. It is folly. And because it is foolish, it is It is bad for us. It is harmful to us. See, one of the consequences of suppressing our awareness of God in the first place is that we're also suppressing our, our, our sense, our sensitivity to this harmfulness and the shamefulness, that folly and absurdity of sin. And so we dig ourselves deeper and deeper into it, not realizing how deep we're going and um, how harmful it is. And if you don't have that sense, if you switched it off in rebellion against God... You see how, as Paul's describing here, that speeds us down this spiral as though we've taken the brakes off. We're rushing headlong into the depths of it. There's another element to this we need to point out as we talk about the wisdom and folly aspect here. Um, We might think that we're just talking in terms of natural consequences. Um, You know, you get drunk, you wake up with a hangover. If you lie too much, then people will stop trusting you. right? So these are these, uh, these natural consequences of sin, bad things that happen to, to, to you as the natural consequence of the wrong things that you've done. But that's not all that Paul is describing here. We want to notice how the Lord is active in this process. What is the Lord doing in response to people rejecting him? Three times, verse 24, verse 26... Verse 28, three times Paul says God gave them up, handed them over is the meaning of that word, handed them over to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, to dishonorable passions. But that's not all because in the last paragraph Paul is concerned with all kinds of sin. This is the whole of human life that's being impacted here and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... again. God gave them up, handing them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done of every description. See, what the Lord is doing here is he is letting people go in the direction that they chose, giving them what they want. Remember, this section began with Paul saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, see, now Paul is proving that to us by pointing at the human race and saying, just, just look at us. Just look at us. The depths of our sin. God's wrath is revealed against us in the way that he takes away his restraining hand. That's would otherwise maybe keep us back from going deeper and deeper into this spiral. His wrath is revealed when he says, so that's the way you've chosen. I'm not going to stop you. When he hands people over to their desires so that those desires spiral deeper and deeper and sin becomes uglier and uglier and it wreaks greater and greater havoc on our relationships, robs us of peace, They were filled, Paul says, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These things are not only sins which deserve God's wrath, although that is true, but they are also, in Paul's argument here, Evidence of God's wrath against the human race. He has allowed us to sink further and further into our rebellion that, once, that we have once begun. I want you to notice here, in that list, Paul puts side by side here, right next to each other, things that we tend to think of as really bad sins, like murder, right alongside things that we think of as kind of garden variety, not, like no big deal sins, like envy and covetousness. gossiping. And then there are still others in the list that that our culture seems to think of almost as virtues. Sometimes haughty, boastful, insolent. These are characteristics that in everyday everyday life are often admired. They're often rewarded. Um, And kids, we don't want to miss the fact that disobedient to parents is in this list of sins that characterize this this spiral of rebellion against God. And it's a good reminder for us, we've been thinking not just of right and wrong, but about wisdom and foolishness. It's a good reminder that obedience to your parents is not just about following the rules. Sometimes we can think, if I can just follow the rules right, well then I'll be a good kid. and Maybe I'll be a good Christian. But that's that's not what obeying our parents is all about. You're to obey your parents not just because they're bigger than you are and not just because things get unpleasant when you don't do it. See, obedience, obedience is about saying to God, God, you made me and I belong to you and I really want your way and not my way. Because even when I feel like getting my way as well will make me happy, I want your help to learn to listen instead, to learn to listen to your way and to trust that, that you are good and that you will do what is best for me. And we learn that. So that's what that's what grown-ups are having to do in our relationship with God all the time. And it's in our relationship with our parents in a Christian family that we learn to do that in the first place as we grow. You see, it's not a matter of just following a set of rules. It's about whether we're going to have the humility to listen to God and follow his way instead of our own way. In that last verse of the chapter, uh, you can all see once again that when it when it comes to all these terrible choices, they're so harmful to us, this, this moral chaos that Paul's describing, it all flows downstream from that initial rejection of God Himself. Nobody can plead ignorance. Not about God's existence, and not about God's law either. See? though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but it gets even worse. They give approval to those who practice them. And, he, and he's not just talking about... Um, oh, and, and here... Sorry, he is. He, here he's just... Ta- he's talking about um, the world in general here. He's not even... He hasn't even gotten yet to the covenant community, people who have the written law of God. Here he's just talking about conscience the knowledge that all people everywhere share of the law of God. People know that these things are wrong, but they do them anyway. And not just that, but they celebrate them. If it's not as if it's not bad enough to sin against conscience and say, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, we take the further step of depravity of saying, not only am I going to do it, but I'm going to say that this is good. I'm going to celebrate it and embrace it and and approve of others who practice them to lead others with me into this pit that I've dug for myself. So the best way to make ourselves feel better about doing something we know is wrong is to convince ourselves and other people that it's actually good. And sometimes people feel like if they can say that loud enough and long enough, then other people will start to believe it. And maybe if we say it loud, even louder and even longer, then maybe we ourselves will be able to shout down the voice of conscience in our hearts to convince ourselves that it's true. But saying that doesn't make it so... And deep down, we know that. We can believe our own self-propaganda for a while, but the truth is persistent. The truth is there. And we know that we are guilty before God. And that's the message of the second half of Romans 1. So before we close, we want to ask, well, what do we do with this information? This is a pretty dismal place to end. The very bottom of the spiral. I want to offer Three things. To consider as we close for application. First thing is, I think this passage gives us a deeper understanding of our own sin. Deeper understanding of our own sin helps us to see sin in its ugliness and its folly, instead of just seeing it as violating a list of rules, or seeing it as just kind of a slip up here and there. Oh, we made some mistakes. This is something I can kind of brush over, I like kind of minimize. No, we cannot minimize rebellion against our Creator. The arrogance of thinking that we can substitute in our own way of doing things because we've decided that we don't like His way. Which really is another way of saying that we don't want Him, Himself. And this is the way we need to see our own sin, looking at ourselves first. Now, uh, granted, Paul is describing here the fallen human race, apart from Christ, unredeemed so far. So, so this passage doesn't map on directly to the Christian life. Um, what God has done in Christ is He set us free from this spiral. He's put us on a different trajectory towards holiness. But we still have to reckon with this notion that when we do still sin, when we choose sin, we are dipping back into these waters. We are move. Our hearts are moving downwards in this direction we make those choices and the Lord wants us to see not just how wrong it is, but how foolish it is, how absurd it is to have us think, what am I thinking? Why would I do this? He wants to show us so vividly how our how the things that our sinful impulses are crying out for and craving are only going to harm us and the people around us that we love and so that so that, when our sin within us starts asking questions that seem very plausible, like like that song, How Can It Be Wrong When It Feels So Right? Our hearts will have an answer by the grace of God. I'm not going to suppress and substitute this time by the grace of God. I'm going to submit my heart to the greater wisdom of the Lord. The second thing this passage should do is I think it should give us a greater compassion and understanding for people who are trapped in the spiral of sin and haven't found the way out through Christ, at least not yet. To be able to see these people are enslaved to this folly, this absurdity that sin has brought into our lives. But in this passage, what the Lord is doing is he's cutting through the confusion and he's showing us the root of the problem and equipping us to help other people to see the same thing. I think this will make us better helpers, better evangelists. I mentioned Daniel Strange earlier, and you may remember how helpful he was on this point when we studied it in Sunday school. How our goal, with that suppression substitution dynamic in mind, should be to help people to see what is the good thing that you're desiring. What is the good thing that you're desiring because of the way you're made? Because you're made knowing God. But then how are you suppressing that design of God in your heart? And what are you substituting in its place to try to fill that vacuum? And be able to show people how is that that cheap substitute letting you down and harming you and destroying you so that I can help you to see that for what it is and to be free of it stop substituting and to have the real thing. And then the last thing this chapter gives us is a a richer appreciation for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. A richer appreciation for what the Lord Jesus has done for us because we have to understand that apart from Christ, this would be all of us all the time. This is where sin goes, apart from Jesus. And apart from Jesus, this chapter be the end of the story. Verse 32, the end. See, the Lord had every right as our Creator and judge simply to leave the human race to implode as we were doing our best to do. The Lord had every right just to let us take the way that we chose and drive all the way to the end of it and off the end of the broken bridge. And of course, for some people, that is exactly what the Lord does in his wrath. What the rest of the book of Romans is going to show us is that God, in Christ, has made another way. He has made a way out of this spiral of sin and rebellion. Because what Christ has done is he has taken on himself those deadly consequences of our rejection of God of our suppression and substitution. And in response to our sinful exchange of the truth for a lie, Christ is offered a very different exchange, hasn't he? That great exchange, as it's been called, where our sin has been placed on him on the cross, where he bore himself in our place, it's just penalty, the wrath of God. And in exchange, what did Christ substitute He gave to us in exchange His righteousness, His grace, His love, His compassion, His rescue, His almighty saving power. Being handed over to our sin, that's what we deserve, but it's not what Jesus did. Instead, He was handed over to death for us. So we might be just restored, so we might be set on a different path leading up out of the depths, out of our guilt and into his righteousness, out of our sin and into his holiness, out of our foolishness and into his wisdom. And that is good news for the people of God. And it's good news worth sharing so that other people might be broken out of this spiral by the grace of God and restored to the joy and the wholeness of knowing their creator the way that he ought to be known and can be known through Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this sobering and dire passage of scripture, but also for the way your word goes on. Lord, from it, we ask that you would help us to see the depths of our sin more clearly. We pray that you would give us greater compassion and train us to be better helpers, to show people the way through Christ, out of sin and into salvation. help us to embrace with greater gratitude and wonder the depths, the riches of your wisdom and power in saving us from this destiny and giving us a different one in Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.